Observations on the film Oppenheimer There's a lot going on in Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer. It is a story about the harnessing of the power of science for good and for evil. Whether it is possible to harness or control that power. It is a story about the freedom of the individual to be honest with himself and his society in a world of Cold War authority and state secrecy. It tells the story of how a man, guided by his own interior compulsions, fared at a time when total sacrifice of the needs of the individual was the price of power. It also references the question of who should decide when and for what purpose the world-destructive power of nuclear weapons ought to be used. Clearly, only the scientists could build such a bomb, but who should decide when or whether it is used? And also, when all is said and done, how can a Hollywood movie, in a country where all movie endings must be happy ones, or at least the prelude to fresh starts, how can a movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer have a happy ending? The movie ricochets from each of these questions to their companions, back and forth and back again, with admirable clarity and pacing. We observe the brilliance of the young Oppenheimer, as well as his eccentricity. As an experimental physicist student, he nearly went out of his mind and almost committed suicide. Then, once he became a theoretical physicist, he blossoms, attracting the notice of the scientific literati all the world over. He learns Dutch in record time so that he can participate in a discussion with Dutch physicists. He cares about other things besides science, the problems of his time, including poverty, the struggles of the working class, and the plight of Jewish refugees, his co-religionists, in a heartless and anti-Semitic world. He was not a member of the Communist Party, never having signed or accepted a membership card. But in a Hitler world, he admired the Communist Party's anti-fascist positions and gave money to its humanitarian causes, such as aid to Republican Spain in the Spanish Civil War, clearly and obviously becoming a fellow traveler. But the rationality of this position at a time when Hitler might have won the war and dropped atomic bombs on American cities, was lost on the people who were to judge Oppenheimer after the war. His judges were the same age as he. They had lived through the same history as he. But for politicians especially, 1945 was Stund Null in German, zero hour when history began and everything before was forgotten. The only question was, were you now or had you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And no matter what your answer, there was always at least one person to remember, or say they remembered, that the answer was yes. Oppenheimer could remind people what the stakes had been a few years before, until he was blue in the face, and he tried to do so. But star chambers were in vogue during the Cold War, and Oppenheimer was one of the biggest stars to bring low. So we see that Oppenheimer loses his security clearance 
and is branded a security risk, basically driving him out of public life completely. We see him also try desperately and futilely to combine the role of citizen with the role of scientist, begging the politicians to bring nuclear power under international control to prevent global self-destruction. The rejoinder to Oppenheimer is true enough. Why should the scientists hog or even possess the right to decide policy? But this fact being true does not make this a reason not to listen to Oppenheimer's argument, which just might be the correct conclusion of a man deeply interested in such questions and who might just happen to have been a scientist in possession of a good idea. It is hard to argue that the near-total nuclear proliferation that has followed us the last 80 years is a better outcome than the solution that he proposed, international control of nuclear weapons. The men who hounded Oppenheimer, like Shakespeare's Brutus and Cassius, are ambitious rather than honorable men. And, just as in Shakespeare's tragedy, they get their comeuppance at the end of the movie, as Oppenheimer's nemesis loses a cabinet position under Eisenhower. Oppenheimer, in an Indian summer moment, receives a presidential medal from President Johnson, just days after the assassination of the man who was looking forward to giving it to Oppenheimer, John F. Kennedy. This would have to pass for the happy ending promised by Hollywood. But Oppenheimer gets the last word, declaring before his death in 1967 that the promise of nuclear science had failed and the worst-case scenario had already happened, the out-of-control proliferation of a nightmare permanently let loose on a brave new world of uncertain duration. With all these themes, could Oppenheimer bear another one, even given that the movie is more than three hours long? I wish it would have. I wrote to Kai Bird, who co-wrote the Pulitzer Prize biography with Martin Sherwin, on which the movie was based. I asked Mr. Bird whether he and his co-author, Sherwin, ever considered the possibility that Oppenheimer was autistic. After all, Oppenheimer seemed to have emotional meltdowns when he was questioning his place in physics during the 1920s. He also had a strong sense of ethics, which did him no favors when he had to testify to his judgment in associating with communists in the early 1940s. He did not apologize for his aid to communist causes, which were always anti-Hitler in their effects and he did not take into account the political effects of such stubbornness. He answered truthfully, and sometimes more expansively than he needed to do, to the questioners at his tribunal, which gave fodder to those who were looking for as many words to twist in favor of their interpretation of his alleged misdeeds. Some people saw this side of Oppenheimer as charisma and flocked to him, but Oppenheimer had difficulty at times in reciprocating such sought-after friendships. And he had difficulty making friends and did not seem to have very many of them. He was extremely ambitious and not always mindful of other people's opinions, 
which was a strength in some ways, a weakness in others. He had special interests, physics being an obvious one, but Buddhism as well, and he poured himself into the most esoteric and difficult concerns. He also liked to be alone or with one or two friends on horseback rides in his beloved New Mexico. Here is how I put it to Kai Bird. Quote, I wondered if you and Martin Sherwin ever considered whether Oppenheimer was autistic. I see in some of your many vignettes about Oppenheimer signs of behavior uncannily similar to autistic behavior. Professional psychologists charged with diagnosing autism recognize it as an inexact science. They often are responsible for false positives and negatives, yet they go forward with diagnoses nonetheless. For adult clients, they rely heavily on development histories as told by people familiar with the history or biographies of their subject, precisely the information you so richly mined. Other historical figures, including Einstein, have been, tentatively at least, diagnosed by biographers as autistic. Since autism did not first appear in people when scientists happened to discover it, and biographers have ventured its possibility for many subjects over the years, I wondered if you and your co-author considered this possibility with respect to Oppenheimer. If so, I wonder why did you decide not to pursue it? Close quote. Mr. Berg graciously replied, quote, more than one reader has asked this question. I guess Marty Sherwin and I discussed the possibility, but we were not psychiatrists and did not feel comfortable speculating about this issue. Close quote. I can see both the pros and the cons of this response. It is a complex and difficult task to sift through the experiences of a subject and it requires a full understanding of autism in all its variety for a biographer to be up to the task. Most biographers, most people, do not have that. But if a biographical subject happened to be autistic, it would be a profoundly important part of their personality, nature, and being. We have huge gaps in our understanding of those past giants of history, who were autistic, and rest assured there were some, and every biography of any such example is forever lacking. Clearly there were autistic people before autism became known in the 1940s. To ignore this fact may be a convenient way out of the dilemma, but it does no service to the truth, which is after all what a history or a biography is in search of. For all that, Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer is a great accomplishment on film. It almost makes you forget that you are watching a movie. It is that good in drawing the viewer in. Would that it have been more daring and questioning of the gaps in our understanding of Oppenheimer, gaps which yet still remain. This is your host, Rick Ryman, thanking you for listening.